It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show. Our mission to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. In today's episode, I'm going to start out with what I consider to be a dirty word in the travel industry, timeshares. I want to share with you what an insider has said is really happening to those trying to get rid of their burden of a timeshare they don't want. Also, do you think your fellow American just wants handouts that they want to just sit on their rear ends and not work? A new survey says, "Mm, have more faith in your fellow Americans. So somebody you should not have faith in is somebody who says, hey, that timeshare you got, I'm going to help you get rid of it. Well, there was a story in Kiplinger magazine where they had an insider who worked ripping people off who were stuck with timeshares they didn't want. And this story is so disturbing, it's beyond belief. First of all, you have a condo building, let's say. Let's just call it a condo building. And a developer's selling out that condo building. And it has 100 units in it. They have to sell 100 properties, one real estate closing each. Let's say that condo building becomes a timeshare instead. How many times do they have to sell each unit? 51 times. So instead of 100 sales, they have 5,100 transactions they have to do. Now, how's that math working out? The sales expenses involved in commissions, gigantic. The marketing costs, obscene. So what happens when you buy a timeshare week is the money you're paying is all demolished by the marketing, sales, commissions, and administrative costs. The actual value of the week you bought is truly zero because the cost embedded in it is charged to you in those fees you have to pay each year. But much worse than a rental, you're obligated to those fees forever. And there are times people buy a timeshare and they love it. It works for them. They go year after year after year and they can't wait to use their timeshare. But then there are others, most, who buy a timeshare, end up never going, or going and then they stop going, but the obligation keeps going, and desperately they want rid of it. And that's where the crooks enter. And in this insider account, it would make you sick. So here's what happens. The timeshare ripoff outfits that say, hey, we got a buyer for your timeshare. And they're, they love it so much, they're going to pay you top dollar. You're going to make real money on this thing. You thought you were stuck with this timeshare? Not at all. Wow, this is really working out for you. So we got this buyer, they're going to pay you blah, blah, blah dollars. But we need from you $1,500 for the paperwork and the commission for finder's fee or whatever. So people over and over again pay those fees because they're tired of the thousand two thousand dollars whatever you're having to pay in all the embedded fees 
for your timeshare week each year for the place they're not using. And they're like, wow, we can cut our losses. We're going to pay this. We're going to be out. But it was just a crook that contacted you. There is no buyer. There is no sale. But here's where it gets really weird. How did they know about you? How did they find you? Well, apparently, the crooks pay bribes to people inside timeshare operators to give them leads and information, names, contact phone numbers, addresses of people who are disgruntled owners of a week that want to get rid of it. And then the crooks contact you and they get in your wallet. Here's the truth. Timeshares are defective as a product because anything that has all sellers, no buyers, once you own it, is a faulty purchase. The fact that your obligation for a timeshare is perpetual, meaning you're obligated to it forever, and the fees you're charged you have no control over, they can go up repeatedly, these things absolutely stink. Now, there's some suggestions in the Kiplinger magazine article that I'm a little nervous about saying. But I'm asked over and over again, what happens if you just stop paying? And I talk about your credit being ruined and they might come after you. In the Kiplinger piece, they said, take your chances because the odds that somebody is actually going to sue you or ruin your credit are quite low. That to me is not advice I'm particularly comfortable with. But that is something that they say in this particular thing. Um, In fact, it says in here, consider walking away from your timeshare as they generally have no value. Stop paying. Ignore their communications. It will eventually get foreclosed. And owing any deficiency, that's where you have to pay the losses, is highly unlikely. That is the conclusion in this story. I read it to you with a skeptic's voice. All right, Clark, I love this one. Kevin in Indiana says, I'm 55 years old and married to the best woman in the world. Since we could not afford a honeymoon at age 19, she wants and deserves a trip to Hawaii. I work construction and she works at a cabinet manufacturer. She deserves a proper honeymoon and I'm ill-equipped to give her the time of her life. Not financially, I can afford it, but I need help planning it. Please help. Kevin, first of all, I love what you said about your 36 years with the best woman in the world. And I love you want to take her to Hawaii. Um, Planning a trip to Hawaii is easier than you might imagine. But if you want to hit the easy button... Costco Wholesale is, through their travel operation, Costco Travel, is one of the largest providers of pre-planned trips to Hawaii anywhere, maybe the largest. And it's worth joining Costco just to be able to have their help on putting together a Hawaiian trip because they have so many negotiated deals where everything is taken care of for you. In Hawaii, you don't need a lot. You just need somebody to, to help you book the properties and that kind of thing. Um, airfare, that side of it, 
that's pretty easy to do yourself to match up with the package that you might buy from Costco Travel. With the airfares to Hawaii uh, having been extremely low, now still pretty low from the West Coast, you would buy a ticket from, let's say, uh, Indiana, the, the airport with the most competition is Indianapolis in the state of Indiana. You'd fly Indianapolis to somewhere on the West Coast where you find really cheap fares to Hawaii. And the fares to Hawaii have been as cheap recently from West Coast departure points as 238 Recently, they've been about $100 more to go to the Hawaiian Islands. And uh, I, I think you're going to have a wonderful way of enjoying your very, very long life you've had together in the Hawaiian Islands, one of my favorite places anywhere in the world. So awesome. Okay. <laughs> Will in New Jersey says, I love the show. I've been listening for over half of my life and I'm not even 40 yet. You recently lamented the length of the CVS receipts. Believe me, I'm not a big CVS fan and enjoy my local pharmacy, but there are times, as you mentioned with your son's injury, where somehow we found ourselves in one. FYI, they have offered digital receipts for years. You can sign up on their website. There's also an option for this in their mobile app, but be sure to read the privacy policy as it may allow them to send you marketing emails if you don't opt out. However, now whenever I'm there, I get one less thing adding insult to their injurious prices. Thank you for your honesty and quality work all these years hey will thank you for that suggestion i hate those thermal papery kind of uh multi-foot long receipts <laughs> from cvs and uh that you can eliminate that and at the same time eliminate them spamming you on the app i think is great i truly appreciate that and then Karen in Georgia says, I've heard you your show recently on debit cards and the use thereof and was shocked when I just activated a new card. It had a default credit spending limit of $10,000. Yes, all those zeros. Wow. No wonder folks get into themselves into trouble. I immediately lowered that to $1,000 for my protection. But if I had not noticed this during activation, what someone could have done is scary. Please let others know. Hey, thank you so much, Karen, for that post. Now, you said debit card, and then you said credit spending limit of 10000 So I don't know if you got, if it, you said you activated a new card. Don't know if that was a credit or debit card. On a debit card, limiting the spend is a great idea because it keeps your money from being at risk. With a credit card, you're talking about temptation. Now, there's two sides to this coin. And the other is that having a high credit limit, if you can control yourself and spending towards it, will actually raise your credit score. Um, but at the same time, for others who can't resist the temptation, you're so right. It can spend you into oblivion and very high debt at very high interest rates. And I got to say something to you. I am the man from education. I'm into you being a lifelong learner. And this is a trend with our fellow Americans. They would like to obtain new skills, not have a guaranteed check just for breathing. Oh, and I'm going to talk about that straight ahead. I was so, so happy recently about 
a research study done by the Pew Research Center where they polled Americans on what they thought the government should be doing in terms of giving money to their fellow Americans. And there's been a segment of the population, including a lot of economists for years, who have been really into something called today in our country, we refer to it as universal basic income, something that some countries in Europe do more or less, where every adult just for breathing gets a check from the government every month. The idea is that it provides for the basics of life, even if you choose not to work. Well, there are a lot of our fellow Americans who believe that other Americans want that, that they're just uh, people who want to live off the generosity of their fellow taxpayers and just live a life of leisure. But the reality is the Pew Research Center found that Americans really want the access to more jobs and skill training to be able to advance career-wise. Overwhelmingly, Americans are not looking for the government to dole out money. And I'm really glad to see that because I hope that more and more people are recognizing something I've been obsessed with for a long time, and that is that we can't think of education as being something we just do to age 18 or 22 or 24, that the dynamics of the economy and the changes wrought by technology mean that the nature of work is going to continually change. That if you look 20 years out, the overwhelming number of jobs that exist today will no longer exist. They will have been displaced and replaced by different kinds of things requiring different skills. So I think it's essential that we have a clear effort from trade schools that are state-supported trade schools and other equivalent vehicles where you have access at little to no cost and in the polling that uh, that was done by Pew, people want that training for a new skill to be flat out free, that that be subsidized by the government. And even if it was done that way, I would still be much happier about that where you were learning a new skill where you could get a really good job paying more money because I think that's what we need to be about. I, I saw polling recently that, I forget which of the coal mining states it was, that coal miners that are being displaced by cheaper technologies for energy want the government to retrain them for new jobs. One poll I saw was specifically they wanted to be trained so they would know how to work on solar and wind. I mean, that's what you do in a dynamic economy. You don't leave people train wrecked by changes that technology brings. You give people the opportunity to migrate with new skills to new things. I mentioned recently briefly on the podcast about the idea of, uh, and this isn't my idea, this is something that a job development nonprofit came up with, that new skills be made available to you, the training for them for free, 
but that then when you get gainfully employed in whatever field it is, you then pay a commission of your paychecks till you paid back the embedded cost of that training back to where you got the training. It would get all the incentives aligned right on training. But the most important thing is know that what you do today may earn you great satisfaction emotionally, may earn you a decent paycheck as well, but that that may not be your forever opportunity because of the changes in the economy over time and the nature of work over time. And all of us have a duty to ourselves and those that depend on us for income to be aware of how the economy shifts and get the training we need over time. Okay, Clark, let's do some questions. Herman in Alaska says, I recently stopped working for traditional companies and want to start my own business. I currently drive for food delivery apps, which cover my current expenses and provide additional savings. My question is, are passive income streams like demand print t-shirt sales with third online business partners a legitimate way to earn additional income? No, you don't want to be, uh, in that case, you're kind of like an investor in somebody else's business. And with a small business like that, I don't recommend being what historically was referred to as a silent partner. I think that the risk level is too high when you're not in control of the operation itself. And then Kathy in Hawaii says, should I do an FSA with my employer if I have to pay the admin fee of $4.50 per month? I haven't participated in it since I started here six years ago because I'm bitter that there's a fee when my last employer didn't pass the fee on to employees. Of course, I only planned on staying here two to three years, but now it's looking more like 10 years to get vested for retirement. There's no retirement if I leave before 10 years, which should be illegal. It's all right. I'm doing fine in retirement savings. Kathy, it's funny. Your employer has big sticks followed by uh, big rewards because- Today, almost nobody gets a retirement plan, a pension, and you will have that with the 10 years of service, four more years there. So the FSA, the answer to that question is $4.50 a month. If you're putting in a substantial amount of money into an FSA, as much as it annoys you, pay it because you're able to put money tax-free, pre-tax, into the flexible spending account to use for medical and if you have any kids for dependent care or if there's an elderly person you're taking care of is your dependent dependent care money the value of that being tax free becomes quite high if you're putting meaningful amount of money into an FSA and then Evan in Colorado says I live in Denver and only drive about 5000 miles per year on my personal car as the rest is put on a work vehicle should I just keep my winter tires on my personal car all year long rather than paying Costco $50 per swap every winter and spring, so $100 per year? Doing so would probably give me five years per winter tire set due to extra summer wear with no swap costs versus 10 years swapping with approximately $1,000 in total swap fees at Costco. Winter tires cost $624 a set, after $110 off in summer tires cost $774 per set after $150 off. A little Evan, math for you. I love it. I mean, a train leaves Cleveland at 2 p.m. Another train <laughs> leaves Chicago at 3 p.m. One is traveling 30 miles an hour. The other 40. Which is the one that's going to get there first? Okay. So in your case, um, 
first, your diligence in getting the swaps done is great. The small number of miles you're driving per year, um, I would say eliminate the swap fees. And if you got to replace the winter tires sooner, you're not having to own the summer tires. I think you just keep the winter tires on all year long and deal with that racket of that noise that winter tires make on dry pavement. <laughs> and Jane in Georgia says, our 14-year-old daughter earned $2,500 last year working part-time at our business answering phones and cleaning. She filed a tax return, so it's legitimate earned income. Should I invest that money for her into a custodial Roth, or should I put that into her college savings, or alternatively let her continue to save it to purchase a car in a few years? Saving for a car would allow her to see a direct cause and effect with her work, but the money may be more useful in a Roth or 529, and she is very likely to seek higher education and get an advanced degree. Thank you for your insight. Jane, there is no one right answer to your question. The advantage of putting it in a 529 account, since you know she's going to do a lot of education, is if your state has a state tax deduction for contributing to a 529 plan, you would have that plus the tax-free growth of that money towards college. On the other hand, the Roth would not have the potential state upfront tax deduction. It would just have long-term tax-free growth. But with the Roth, the contributions, not its earnings, but the contributions can be withdrawn at any time tax and penalty-free. So they both have advantages. Having the money in a simple savings account would be the third and worst choice because even in the case of putting that 2500 in a Roth, the 2500 itself would be available to her at a later date to use tax-free towards the purchase of the vehicle. She would just have to leave the earnings till that point in the Roth. So I hope that makes sense. There are clear advantages to both the 529 and the Roth and clear disadvantages to the traditional savings account. And I hope that you have found it an advantage listening to our podcast as much as I love doing this. I hope if you're not already subscribed, you'll become one of our regular listeners. 